Anyway, it's good to see everyone here who is here. Uh, hopefully you can all hear me okay. I think it was too loud a second ago. Uh, can you guys hear me in the back? Okay, yes. Live stream, can you hear me? No idea, that's okay. Uh, but as we uh, jump in today, so we're going to be making our way again to the next section in the book of Jude. We started our series on Jude last week uh, as we are going through Jude in June this month. We're making our way through the book of Jude. And last week, you recall, we looked at verses 1 through 4, kind of a, an introduction to the letter. We got an idea of why it is that Jude was writing, what the issue was that he was writing to this church to address. And we kind of got a feel of, of the issue and, and for Jude's heart in writing. And, uh, and even in those first few verses, a, a lot of theology packed in, uh, kind of setting the stage for the rest of the book. Uh, so today, as we continue on through the book, we're going to be taking uh, kind of a, a, a bigger chunk. This is really the body of the book that we're going to be looking at today, Jude, uh, verses 5 through verse 16 is where we're going to be today. Jude, verses 5 through 16. And if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. We're going to start off by reading our text today. Jude, verses 5 through 16. It says this. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contending for the devil was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand uh, instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and are perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves, the sea casting up, uh, ca wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Let's pray. Lord, as we have begun our study of your word here today, we ask for your grace. We ask for your Holy Spirit to work in this place. As I, uh, as I preach this morning, Lord, I know that, uh, that Denton Ice has no power in and of himself. Uh, Lord, I am ultimately nothing 
except if, if it be your will, I'm an instrument to be used in your hands here this morning. So Lord, I ask that you would do exactly that, that you would use this sermon, that you would use me, that you would use most of all your word to challenge our hearts, to encourage us as a body of believers and to help us uh, understand how it is that we can stand against the false teaching, the false doctrine uh, that comes at us in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we kind of read our text here, um, I want to start off by saying, as you may have noticed from the reading of our text, there's a lot of weird stuff in this text. A lot of interesting stories, a lot of history, a lot of um, really just kind of fascinating elements that are seen kind of not very many other places in Scripture. It's like Jude takes some of the most obscure references he can find in the Old Testament and in, in an old Jewish text and like squeezes them into this one book. And so I will say, I, I would love to be able to just dive into each one of these one by one, dissect them, look at the history of all of them. Uh, but frankly, we don't have enough time for that. Uh, so if you're really into kind of the history behind all of these things, I'm sorry, you're going to kind of be on your own for most of it. This is more of a, of a primer. Uh, but my hope is that we can see really the, the idea that Jude would, would have us to, to learn, the idea that he is really seeking to convey by the use of these stories, of these uh, judgments, of these historical events even, uh, to serve the purpose of encouraging the church uh, and of standing against false teachers. So as we began last week, we learned that the reason Jude is writing is in fact to combat false doctrine, to combat false teaching. Jude makes clear that these false teachers have infiltrated the church. They have snuck in, essentially. They have uh, crept in unnoticed, he says, and now uh, are are defiling the church, they are a danger to the church by their um, kind of lifestyles that in which they just give in to whatever they desire. They give in to the flesh. He says in verse 4 as a reminder uh, that these people pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So these are people who have, who have perverted the grace of God. And, and as we talked about last week and as we're going to see today, the way that they do this it is essentially by rejecting the lordship of Christ. There is a lordship issue at stake here. And it, it kind of makes me wonder, like, there's clearly a, a dangerous threat that Jude sees here coming from these false teachers. Not only a threat that, like, oh, these individual people who, who are coming into the church are in danger of going to hell, though that is absolutely the case, but also Jude is concerned that this might infiltrate the church and that it might permeate into the congregation, the body of believers and as i was wondering kind of thinking through what what is it that would cause people to accept this false teaching what is it what is so appealing about it that that would cause them to potentially leave the truth of of good doctrine and of uh, of abandoning the lordship of jesus christ in order to accept this and i think ultimately what it comes down to as far as what is it that these false teachers are trying to sell and i think what what really they're they're trying to sell these false teachers, these promoters of self, these people who are engaging in sensuality and, and indulging the flesh, is that they are selling a sense of freedom to the congregation. They're selling a sense of, of freedom, and I, I use quotes because this is only a certain kind of freedom, a freedom that says you don't have to be bound by rules and regulations and do's and don'ts. 
You don't have to worry about living a certain way, acting a certain way, speaking a certain way. All of that doesn't matter. You're free. Free to live however you want. Really, freedom is the selling point here for these false teachers. And this kind of freedom, this kind of libertarian freedom that we can do whatever we want is attractive. It is attractive to all people in all cultures. I think, though, it is especially attractive to people in our culture today. No one likes being told what to do. No one likes being, having regulations set upon them, having authority over them. And so the idea of being freed from that appeals to us. It appeals to all sinful people. And all people are sinful. So there is an appeal to all people here. The title of my sermon today is The Freedom of Orphans. And I, I thought about what it means to be free and what kind of freedom is being promoted here by these false teachers. And I thought of the, the story of Oliver Twist. I don't know if you've ever uh, seen the, the movie, the musical Oliver Twist, or if you've uh, read the book. I think there's a book at least. I haven't read it, but I have seen the musical. Um, it's, it's a story of an orphan boy, right? This orphan named Oliver. And Oliver finds himself, uh, he, he leaves the orphanage that he was at. He's kind of booted out, as it were. And finds himself an orphan on the streets. He comes into contact with these other boys, this kind of group of orphans who uh, are, are kind of sort of living it up. They, they run around doing whatever they want, living however they want. They, they're stealing from people. They're stealing food that they need. There is really a great sense of freedom in this sort of orphan life. That, that Oliver and these other boys find themselves in. They have no parents telling them what to do or what not to do or where to be and when to be there. They have no one instructing them on how to dress or, or how to behave or what to say. They are essentially free to behave however they want, to do whatever they want, to give in to whatever desires they see fit. They're bound in, in, in that sense by no regulation of, of parents or parental guidance. Just one old criminal named Fagin who kind of just lets him do what he wants and as long as they keep bringing him things that they've stolen from people. There's a very kind of understandable sense in which these orphans are free, right? No rules, no regulations, no parents, no authorities telling them what to do. And the fact of the matter is that this freedom that's being sold by the false teachers here to the church in the book of Jude is a very similar kind of freedom to the freedom that, that these orphans in the story Oliver Twist were experiencing. They were saying you can be free from rules, from regulations, from standards. The false system that these, that these teachers were promoting, that these adherents to this doctrine were promoting, is a, was a problem for the church then, and it's a problem for the church today, and it's, a, it's most oftenly in, in theology known as antinomianism. Antinomianism. I know it's kind of a big word, but I'm going to break it down for us. Uh, antinomianism, anti meaning against, nomos meaning law. So basically this is, uh, if you just kind of sound it out, against the law or against having a law. Antinomianism is this idea that we, can, that we are free as Christians. It's something that develops in the church. That we are free from any sort of moral standard. That we're free from any sort of expectation. Free from any sort of law the argument often goes something like this well we as christians today are under grace and therefore we have no need to obey any sort of law 
And not only do they throw out the Jewish law, say we have no need to obey that, but they would say we are under no law altogether. Even the law of God written on our hearts, we are under no compulsion to obey that because we are free in Christ. We are under grace. Obedience doesn't matter. And this heretical system that, that these people were, were promoting, and this in essence is what they were promoting, is alive and well today. But the point that I hope to get across to us today is that this kind of freedom that's being offered by these false teachers, this freedom that they say you can have if you just live the way they live, if you do what they are doing, this is, an, uh, this is the orphan's freedom. This is the freedom of orphans. It is a freedom in a sense, but the reality is that what we have in Christ is far better. So as we look at what Jude has to say about these false teachers in our passage today, my hope is that it will encourage us, that it will help us to see how we can combat this teaching, help us to identify it, help us to purge it from the church. So, so as we make our way through this passage, we're going to kind of break it down into a few manageable sections, take it one bite at a time. So first, we're going to start with point number one, dealing with antinomianism. Now, point number one says that antinomianism is a form of rebellion in verses five through seven. In these passages, verses five through seven, Jude tells his readers of three historical events, things that actually happened in history, events, events in which people in one way or another rebelled against God. First example we see is the example of the Israelites, who after being saved from Egypt and led to the promised land, that what they do, they sent spies into the promised land, right? They sent 12 spies into Canaan, and they came back with conflicting reports. Two of the men came back and said, the land is great. It's flowing with milk and honey. There's grapevines that are huge. They were excited about it. They said, this, is, this is, land is amazing, and it's ours. Let's go take it. Two of them, one of them being Joshua. And, but we see then, what do the other 10 men came back, come back and say? They say, there's giants in the land. We're like grasshoppers to them. We don't stand a chance. There's no way we can take this land. And so they decide not to take the land. What was that an example of? It was an example of rebellion against God's authority, a lack of trust, lack of belief that God is who he says he is, and a deciding that we know better than God. And what did God end up doing? Cast them back into the wilderness. And said, you're going to wander in the wilderness until this entire generation is dead. Each and every person of that generation, save a couple, those two spies, each and every one of them was killed in the wilderness. They faced God's judgment instead of entering the land of Canaan for their rebellion. The second example we see in verse 6 are the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but, as Jude tells us, left their proper dwelling. Now, there's some kind of debate over what is actually, actually being discussed here, but some clues further down in the text would, uh, would indicate that probably what's being discussed here is, uh, is what we see in Genesis chapter 6, where, uh, where angels of God saw daughters of men, they saw women, earthly women here on earth, and came down and had sexual relations with them and produced offspring that were an abomination, these giants. And again, this is another example of rebellion that Jude is giving, that, that these angels left their proper and designated place, sought to be something more than they were, rebelled against the authority of God. And what was the end result for them? 
it says in verse 6, he has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. And then finally, the third example he gives here in this section is uh, one that we all have likely heard of and are familiar with, the, this example of Sodom and Gomorrah. These cities known for their sexual exploits. There was all kinds of sins that these people were guilty of, but what is mentioned in this text and what they were most known for was their sexual immorality. And he says of them the, that they rebelled against God by indulging in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Specifically, the sin of sexual immorality. I said this last week, and, and we're going to see it again in our text today, that what goes hand in hand with false teaching, false doctrine, false systems of belief is sexual sin. It is almost always present. So we're given here three explicit historical examples of individuals, of people leaving their lane, rebelling against God. And in each instance, what we see is that is what they reaped from their decisions was judgment and wrath and destruction. The Israelites who did not believe were destroyed in the wilderness. The rebellious angels are held in gloomy darkness, awaiting final judgment. And Sodom and Gomorrah underwent the terrible punishment of eternal fire. The fact of the matter is that this is the only possible end for those who rebel against God. The only end for them is judgment and wrath and destruction. And it is a just end. It is just and good and righteous for God to destroy a rebellious people. That's what all of us deserve, right? We are all rebels in our own right. It wasn't until the Holy Spirit intervened in our life to restore new spiritual life to our hearts, to give us a new heart, that we were ever able to not be a rebel, right? That's why when we read about this rebellion, when we read about uh, the destruction that comes upon those who rebel, it ought to cause us to really caution and, and think about whether or not we could be classified as rebellious or as a rebel. It is not a designation that you want. Because, uh, frankly, the way that we were described before we were, were believers as, was what? Rebels, right? Enemies of God, haters of God. And their end is destruction and death. So point number one is that antinomianism is a form of rebellion. Point number two, antinomianism is a form of blasphemy. In verses 8 through 10, we see this. The word blasphemy shows up in each one of these three verses in some form or another, indicating that this sort of false belief system, this false doctrine, this false teaching, is not only a contradiction to the truth, it is a blaspheme against the truth and a blaspheme against the Lord God. Verse 8 tells us that in rejecting the authority of God in our lives, we blaspheme the glorious ones. The glorious ones here, most likely referring to Angels, angels are, are what? The messengers of God, the, one who, the ones who represent God when they are sent forth. So therefore, to blaspheme these angels is, in essence, to blaspheme the one who sent them, to blaspheme the Lord God. I find it interesting, too, in verse 8, that what he says here about these people, he says, in like manner, these people, these false teachers, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. 
He says you're relying on their dreams. And, and what that immediately evokes for me is the plethora of false religions, false doctrines, false teachings that have sprung up whole religions like Islam and, and Mormonism that have sprung out of someone receiving a dream or a vision and then declaring that to be revelation, that to be truth. And while Jude may have that in view here, and certainly that would qualify as false doctrine and, a, and false teaching, false beliefs, it really doesn't seem to classify the people he's talking about here. They don't seem to be putting forward some new document or some new like revelation. Really what they're doing is that they're just rebelling against the authority of Christ over their lives and the way that they live and the way that they act. And so what I would argue, what I would say is more likely in view here by, by Jude when he says that they rely on their dreams is more than anything that they are just seeking to justify their actions, their way of life, their lifestyle by their own emotions, by their own thoughts, by their own desires. So that's what most often happens in the church today. When we see someone living in sin, they can almost always find a way to justify it. I'll never forget one time when I was an intern in, at a church in Virginia. Um, I, there was this girl, and she was, she was a Christian. She was dating a guy who was not a Christian. And the youth pastor told her, you really need to break up with this guy. He's not a Christian. You need to, you need to not be dating him. And she said, okay, all right, I hear you. I hear you. And she left and um, came back next week and talked to the youth pastor and said, you know, I prayed about it. And I think God wants me to keep dating him. Now, that's so foolish. And we can easily like sit here and, and say, yeah, that's really dumb. That's really foolish. But so often we do the same thing in our lives, don't we? We find ways to justify our lifestyle. We find ways to justify the small little sins that we do, the, the things that we kind of enjoy that we don't want to give up. Find ways to justify them through cliches or through uh, whatever the case may be, by our own feelings or perceptions of who God is. Even the verse that we read earlier during our uh, confession or our assurance. We read John 3.16. Has there ever been a verse more abused in Scripture than John 3, 16? Oh, well, God so loved the world that he sent a son, so now no one has to die. No worries. We can do whatever we want. It is so easy for sinful, wicked human beings to justify themselves by their own emotions, by their own thoughts, by their own dreams. So if you remember last week, uh, I said that Jude was one of the most neglected books in the New Testament, in part because of its kind of weird and oftentimes confusing storage and image, stories and imagery. And verse 9 in our text here is a perfect example of this. In verse 9, we receive this really just kind of obscure story. He says in verse 9, When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, like I said, I would love to just take each one of these little stories, dive into them, go deep, trying to understand what he's talking about, what is he saying. Most likely here, Jude is, is referencing a story in the book of Enoch. Uh, we don't know for sure, but we really have very little clue what instance he's talking about. But Jude mentions it, he uses it, and he uses it for a reason. 
And we don't really have to go like deep into trying to understand all the historical context of what he was talking about. We don't necessarily have to go study the book of First Enoch in order to understand the point that Jude is making here. Because frankly, the point that he's making it rolls right along with everything else we've been saying. There's an issue of authority at stake here. And even the archangel Michael, I don't think anyone would dispute that there is some authority there, right? The archangel Michael, out of fear or presumption of pronouncing a blasphemous judgment, doesn't even rebuke the devil himself. He likely had the authority to do so. Yet he, and for fear, for concern of blaspheming the Lord, instead he appeals to the highest and greatest authority. He says, the Lord rebuke you. Because he understood his place. But he goes on then in verse 10 to say, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. The fact of the matter is here that these people, these blasphemous people, had hard and darkened hearts. He says that they blaspheme all that they do not understand. What would that be? Jesus Christ, the gospel, the doctrine, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. They didn't understand it. Why did they not understand it? Was it that they weren't smart enough? No. If that were the case, I would probably not understand it. Because frankly, I'm not that smart. People in the church uh, for all of time have not come to an understanding of the truth of Scripture by their own intelligence, by their own IQ. How have they come to the understanding of the truth of the gospel? Because it's been revealed to them by the Spirit. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand. Why don't they understand? Because their hearts are hardened. Because they're lost. Because they are wicked. They are not sheep. And then all that they do understand, that is, the desires of the flesh, sensuality, all the things that have been listed so far, these are the things by which they will be destroyed. In verse 11, he sums all of that up by saying, woe to them. Woe to them. This harkens back to Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees, does it not? Woe to you, Pharisees and scribes. Point number three. Antinomianism has no place in the church. Jude is trying every possible way in verses 12 and 13, every way that he can think of, he is trying to make clear the point that these people who are accepting this false doctrine, who are promoting this, this bad way of living, they have no place among the body of Christ. What does he say in 12 and 13? He says, these are hidden reefs at your love feast, that they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of outer darkness has been reserved forever. He uses a whole list of descriptors in order to get the point across to his readers that these people are not only useless to the church, but they are a danger to the church. He says they are hidden reefs, meaning they represent a very real and present danger, but one that is oftentimes hidden below the surface. There is nothing more dangerous to a ship than a hidden reef. That will sink a ship faster than anything else. 
And that's what these people were. The fact that they were feasting with the church, even partaking in the love feast, the feast that they would partake of before the Lord's Supper, indicates that the church was ignorant to the danger that was lurking below the surface. This is why Jude finds it necessary to write to them concerning these ones, these who have snuck into the fold. The problem is, most of the time, the theology of people who perpetuate this kind of false teaching, this kind of false way of living, this kind of orphan-like freedom, their theology oftentimes looks like our own. In fact, on paper, they might be almost identical. They would affirm the same creeds that we affirm. They would affirm the same statements of faith that we affirm. But in their lives, in their actions, in the way that they live, they deny Christ. That's more often than not what happens. That happens within the Southern Baptist Convention. There are pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention who I would have grave issues with and I would never let preach from this pulpit. And yet they affirm the same creeds that I believe, the same statement of faith that we affirm here at Redeemer Fellowship Church. They would say, yes, I agree with that. Yet with their lives, the things that they promote, the way that they live, the way that they act, I would never allow them to preach from this pulpit. These kind of people are a danger to the church. And oftentimes they are unnoticed, like a hidden reef. And things might seem fine from our perspective, even though they're not. There is a real and present danger. This last week, literally on Thursday, we had a great big limb fall down in our backyard. Fell right onto our power line. Our power line didn't actually come completely disconnected, though. It came like partially disconnected. So on the inside of our house, Thursday, seemed, things seemed pretty normal. Like some of the lights kind of flickered a little bit. Um, some things would work, some wouldn't. But overall, myself, Kaylee, we were able to function relatively normally. Even the TV would come on. We could watch TV while this giant limb was on our power line out back. From our perspective at that time, things were pretty normal, pretty fine. I mean, we didn't really have much to complain about. But under the surface, there was a really serious issue. Not only was that limb ready to take it down completely at any moment, but it was causing issues that we didn't even see. Like our deep freeze in the basement would not work, wasn't getting enough power. That's a serious problem. But one that at the time from us living up in the living room, watching TV, hey, didn't even know about it. Don't have to worry about it, right? Our air conditioner wasn't working. The fan was still running, but it was not cooling the house at all. So the longer we would have waited, the hotter and hotter our house would have got. It was really hot this weekend. That would have sucked. So you see, things seemed kind of fine from our perspective in the living room, watching TV. But left undealt with, the issue of that giant limb on the power line would have wrecked us. It would have destroyed our air conditioning unit. It would have spoiled all the food in our house, in our freezer, and in our refrigerator. The same is true of these hidden reefs. These people that have been allowed in to come and feast, even at the love feast. Is that on the surface, things probably seemed fine. To many people in the church, things probably seemed okay. But if left unchecked, false teaching, false doctrine, false ways of living will destroy a church. And it will rot from the inside out. 
That is exactly Jude's concern, his reason for writing. He was not concerned that they had adopted a new doctrinal statement. That was bad. That hadn't happened. He was worried about the rot coming from the inside. Trees twice dead. So antinomianism has no place in the church. And then finally, in verses 14 through 16, we see that antinomianism, this kind of lawlessness, refusal to submit to any sort of moral law, it results in judgment. These heavy passages, these heavy verses, 14 through 16, make clear to us this reality where Jude says this. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh son of Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness and that they, that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What is the end of this kind of thinking? Judgment. These verses reiterate what Jude says in verse 4. That their condemnation was determined long ago. Their judgment was determined long ago. Even in this Old Testament prophecy. Which, by the way, this prophecy is not actually in the Old Testament. It's from the Old Testament time. From the, again, from the book of Enoch. A book that's not even, like, canonical. This isn't a book that we recognize to be inspired. The word of God. And yet, in this case, Jude references it because it is absolutely true. That the Lord is coming to execute judgment on this kind of people. What kind of people is it? Well, he says it for us like a thousand times in here. Ungodly, ungodliness, ungodly, ungodly. In two verses, he uses ungodly and ungodliness four times. Really in one verse, verse 15. These people were, could be summed up in the word ungodly. And church family, the point that I want us to hear today is that the lie that these false teachers were perpetuating, this so-called freedom that they were claiming and promoting in the name of Christ, the end of this kind of freedom, the end of this kind of lifestyle, this kind of teaching, is death. And sure, there is a sort of freedom that comes along with antinomianism. Even Paul says, at one time before Christ, you were free with regards to righteousness. There is a sort of freedom that is available if we reject the lordship of Christ. But what kind of freedom is it? It's the same kind of freedom of Oliver Twist, an orphan. In that to reject the lordship of Christ, to reject his commands, his will over your life, is the same as rejecting a good home, rejecting a good father for the sake of an orphan lifestyle. It's foolishness. This is not the kind of freedom that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there is, in fact, freedom to be found in Christ. You might already be going there in your head. You're saying, well, isn't, aren't we free in Christ? Don't we see that in Scripture? And yes, we absolutely do. There is freedom found in Christ, but it is a much more satisfying, much more real kind of freedom than that offered by the false teachers. It is a freedom where we are not free to commit sinful acts, where we are not free to indulge the flesh, but where we are freed from the flesh. We no longer are only able to indulge the flesh, but we are able to worship God. This is the kind of freedom that Christ offers. 
a freedom that frees us from our sin, frees us from the consequences of our sin, from an eternity of wrath that is destined for us apart from Christ. We are freed from that. We are freed from the slavery to our sin. Because Romans 8 makes clear that apart from Christ, before we are in Christ, we are able only to sin and sin some more. That is it. Everything apart from Christ that comes from a person's heart, comes from a person's life, is wicked. It is corrupted by sin. Only until we are given new spiritual life in Christ do we have the kind of freedom that frees us from that slavery to sin and frees us to obedience and worship and the glorifying of God and pleasing of God. We are called in the Bible to submit to the Lord as slaves, slaves to God, slaves to righteousness. Even Jude himself introduces himself in verse one, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. We are called to submit to the Lord as slaves. This should define and shape our obedience. And we obey as willing servants while at the same time we submit to the Lord like a slave, like a servant, and we obey him in that respect. At the same time, we receive the status and all the benefits associated with being his son. It is the, the alternative between the two realities that we see in the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son would be more like these antinomians who wants freedom from his father he doesn't want to live under his father's thumb anymore his father's rule he wants his inheritance and he wants to go do whatever the heck he wants to do and so his father gives it to him that is relatively representative of what these men are doing here rejecting the authority of christ over their lives wanting to do whatever they want indulging themselves indulging the flesh and ultimately the prodigal son found that that was a road that left to led to nothing to destitute but the other son in that story also had an issue did he not where he viewed himself not as a son loved by his father but he viewed himself and spoke of himself as a slave where he says father have my have i not always done what you have commanded you how come you've never given me a fatted calf i have obeyed everything that you have commanded you never speaking of his love for him his care for him his compassion for him as his son This is one of the most amazing parts of the freedom that we have in Christ. That we are called, yes, we are called to submit and to serve as a slave of God. But at the same time, we are given all the benefits and rights of a son of God. And it is a fair trade. In the story of Oliver Twist, what is the happiest part in that story? When he's no longer an orphan. He is taken home and given a home and a father. And yes, along with that comes expectations. He has to clean himself up. He has to do certain things, certain chores. He has to obey his father. But that was a far better deal than this faux freedom that he had with the other orphans. In Christ, we are commanded and empowered to do good works, to abstain from sin, to obey Christ's commands, but not as a way to earn his forgiveness the way the other son in the prodigal son story did. Rather, as a way to glorify him and honor him. And this might be one of the most amazing aspects of our freedom in Christ. 
that we are not able to that we are not able to do what God has created us to do before Christ, but in Christ we are. Because what has God created us for? What has God created human beings for? What is the chief end of man? If you want to talk in Westminster talk, it is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our freedom in Christ means that we are able to do that. We are able to live a most satisfied life because we are the only ones able to do what we have been called by God to do and created for. We were created for this. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we are only able to do that when we submit to his lordship and his authority. Only Christians are able to live fully satisfied lives. Because only Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit and able to do anything to bring him glory. So for those of us who are in Christ, his commandments are not a burden. Amen? We would all attest to this. If, if you are Christ here today in this place and you desire to serve him and to obey him, is it a burden? Absolutely not. It is a joy and a privilege. That doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean we don't fall short. That doesn't mean we don't fail and sin. We confessed our sin today, recognizing we still sin. The difference is, what do we do with our sin? Do we relish it? Do we savor it? Do we sit in it? No, we confess it before God because we hate it. That is not where our joy comes from. Our joy comes from obedience to Christ. The sad reality for those who believe this false teaching of antinomianism is that like these false teachers, in their embrace of freedom, they have rejected sonship. They have left a good and loving home of a good and loving father who, yes, holds authority over their lives, but they have left that to be an orphan and a squalor left in filth and ultimately with an end of destruction. They have rejected the care and embrace of a loving father in exchange for living without restraint. And that is a bad trade-off. That is no freedom worth having. So how do we protect then against this false teaching of antinomianism? What would be the antidote to antinomianism? The antidote to antinomianism. Oh my goodness. I shouldn't have put tongue twisters in my sermon. The way we combat this false teaching is by embracing and reveling in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that calls us out of darkness into marvelous light. That gives us not only the ability, but the desire to obey and to worship and to adhere to God's commands. This is the antidote. If we understand Christianity to be obey these rules if you want to be a Christian, then we've missed it. Christianity, the gospel, the truth, is that because God has saved you out of that squalor, because he has adopted you and taken you home as his son, obey him. Enjoy that. There is joy to be had in obedience to God. This is the way we combat this false teaching. Not by saying you have to obey, you have to obey, you have to obey, or you won't be pleasing God. But we say, accept God as your father. He is a good father. Don't reject that. Let's pray. Lord, today as we come, I pray, Lord, that we, as a church body, and Lord, as individuals, 
that we would not shy away from the authority that you have over our lives. That we would not seek to take that for ourselves. We make terrible gods. And yet, Lord, we so often want to be the God of our own life. Lord, I ask that you would forgive us of that. And if there's any sense of that here in this body, Lord, at Redeemer Fellowship Church, that you would purge it from our midst. That you would help us to 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 just savor and lean into and enjoy the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in him, we have been forgiven of our sins, freed from our sin and the bondage that there is, and that we have been adopted as sons of God, now able to do what you have created us to do, and that is to worship and obey and glorify him. And along with that, Lord, comes joy everlasting. Ultimately, Lord, that is our cry. Help us to pursue the true and ultimate source of joy, which is Jesus Christ and submission to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.